want to welcome all of us at Center Street Church, those of us here at Center Campus, as well as those joining us from our campus in Northwest Calgary, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. And I also want to welcome our online viewers as well. As I was reading the Gospel of Matthew and the final week of Jesus' life, there's a passage that really caught my attention. It is a comparison and contrast between two acts of failures. Matthew, the gospel writer, often uses this literary style by juxtaposing two characters. This time, he records back-to-back stories of failures. Two disciples of Jesus flunk the test. Both are guilty of stumbling in discipleship. Both have a major slip and fall flat on their face. One of the disciples recovered from this fall and went on to become the leader of the church. The other continued in this wrong direction and ended up in hell. The two people I'm talking about are Peter and Judas. Peter denied Jesus. Judas betrayed him. So both, in some sense, disowned Jesus. And as we will see today, on the outside, both were guilty of spiritual failures. One act was not worse than the other. The difference is not so much the sin, but the response. Many of you know, I came to faith in Christ from a Hindu family in South India. When I was still a brand new believer, maybe just a few weeks into the newfound faith, I had my first spiritual failure. I was taking a course at a computer training institute. And right before the class that day, they decided to have a small Hindu worship ceremony. It's not uncommon in India where there's not much of a divide between the sacred and the secular. And this common ritualistic ceremony, they light an aromatic inflammable substance called camphor, and the person presiding the ceremony will wave this in front of the Hindu idols. Then they will bring it to all the people who are gathered around, and with cupped hands, each person will touch the flame and then take their hands and touch their eyes. That is just a sign of respect and symbolically expressing that you're receiving the blessings from the idols. Prior to coming to faith in Christ, I had participated in ceremonies like these hundreds of times. That day, I was with a group of friends. And I did not expect this. Our teacher, all of a sudden, decided to do this ritualistic ceremony and invited everybody to join. My friends were all Hindus, and they had absolutely no hesitation. They all joined in. And as a Christ follower, I knew that I should not participate in this idol worship, that I need to be distinct, that I needed to just leave the room. But all of a sudden, I had cold feet, and I just could not move. And I was reasoning in my mind, what will my friends think of me? Will someone ask me later, why did I walk away? Will I have to tell them then that I'm a Christ follower? 
I was worried more about my self-image. It's one thing if you're mentally prepared for a faith test like that, but that day I simply was not ready for it. The whole incident took me by surprise. It just came out of the blue. My courage melted, my knees buckled, and I stood there with everybody else and participated in the ceremony like I was one among them. That was my personal Peter moment. Failure. Failure. Who has not failed in their spiritual journey? Who has a clean record? Who has never stumbled? Whose slate is clean? You determined to pray more and read the Bible more at the beginning of the year. It's April now. You're four months into it. And that zeal and determination seems to have faded. You're in a gathering where they are mocking Christians or the church, and you remain silent because you did not want others to find out you're a follower of Christ. When your friend asked, what did you do on the weekend? You were too ashamed to admit that you were at church. You said, I'm not going to give in to this sin one more time. I'm done with it once and for all. And before you know it, you've gotten right back into it. You said, I want to honor Jesus with my money. I will live a simple life. I'll give generously for God's work. And all of a sudden, that has gone to the back burner. There are different kinds of failures. And they're all too common. Who has not failed one way or the other? So that is why the question is not whether you have failed. But a more important question is, what do you do when you fall? How do you respond to it? How do you recover from it? The challenge I want to give you today is not to allow your failure to have the better of you, but deal with it through genuine repentance and step into the future that God has for you. And I want to compare the story of Peter and Judas and show you how to recover from your failures. The text that we're going to look at is from Matthew chapter 26, verse 69, to chapter 27, verse 5. And if you're physically able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. This applies to all of them watching online. Uh, please stand with us as we read God's Word together. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. And he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. 
immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied, that is your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. And he went away and hanged himself. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, be quiet in our hearts because we want to listen to your voice. We want to hear you speak to us through your inspired word. I pray, dear Lord, that through these two examples, you'll give us life lessons that we will be able to impart and apply to our lives, lessons that will keep us from failure, lessons that will teach us what to do when we do fail. I pray that, Lord, there will be no sense of guilt or condemnation, but we all will recognize the power of your restorative grace. So come and minister to each one of us in the power of your Spirit. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You all may be seated. After the prayer time at the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was arrested and a trial took place overnight at the house of the high priest. Peter managed to follow Jesus at a distance and was hoping to find out what's going to happen to Jesus as he's hanging out at the courtyard of the high priest's house. The Jewish Sanhedrin had concluded that Jesus was worthy of death. They spat on his face, struck him with their fists, and slapped him repeatedly. And Peter was watching all this from a safe distance. Hey, if ever there was a time Jesus needed someone to stay close, this was it. And rather than staying close to Jesus in this hour of need, Peter denies his association with Jesus. Not once, not twice, three times. It was clearly an act of betrayal of trust. You have to remember just a few hours earlier to this account, at the final Passover meal, Jesus had predicted that Peter would deny him three times. And Peter's response was, Lord, if, even if everybody else leaves you, I will not. I will gladly give my life for you. Don't you worry. If there's anyone who is trustworthy among your disciples, you're looking at one. Jesus was facing his trial, and so was Peter. A trial of his faith, and he would be found wanting. 
you notice there is a progression in Peter's denials. Each time it gets stronger. The first time, a servant girl came to Peter and said, I think I recognize you. You also were with Jesus of Galilee. Now, this is a personal conversation. It is non-threatening, coming from a servant girl, not a person of influence. What is she going to do? But look at Peter's response. Verse 17, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Did you see that? Peter is not just responding to the servant girl. He's making sure everybody heard him. Are you saying I was with Jesus? You must be kidding. I don't even know what you're talking about. And Peter's response is intentionally loved so the people in the courtyard who gathered there could also hear him. In the second instance, there's a lot more pressure Clearly, it was Satan who was sifting Peter and applying the heat. Here's this account of the second denial, verses 71 and 72. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. So this time, yet another servant girl recognizes Peter and says to those who are standing there that he's also one of them. She's not talking to Peter, but this girl is talking to those who are around to garner everybody's attention. That was a far more serious threat. And as the challenge intensifies, so does Peter's negative response. This time, Peter denies with an oath. I don't even know this man. It's an interesting phrase, similar to the one Jesus alluded to in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, when talking about people who merely professed faith with their words, but not with their actions, says in Matthew 7, 23, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. It's an identical phrase. Jesus is using. I never knew you means I have no association with you. You and I have no relationship. That is exactly what Peter is claiming here about Jesus. I never knew you. Peter is denying any relationship at all with Jesus. And with those words, he sank deeper in his backsliding. The third instance is the final nail on the coffin. Verses 73 and 74 of our text says, After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. And he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Peter had a distinct Galilean accent. Most of the disciples of Jesus were chosen from the region of Galilee. And now a few people are confronting Peter. Surely you are one of them. Surely can be translated truly. So that tells you they were absolutely certain of this. You are a disciple of Jesus. Fess up now. In response, Peter is now calling 
down curses. This is the most severe of the three denials. In Jesus' time, when people make a promise, they will invoke God's name and say, let God curse me if I'm lying. Let God punish me if I'm not speaking the truth. So that's what Peter is doing here, taking an oath in God's name, saying he had nothing to do at all with Jesus, and that if he is lying, let him be cursed by God. Now, can it get any clearer than this? This is not some vague attempt of Peter to disassociate himself from Jesus. This is an outright repudiation of his faith. And in that moment of self-preservation, Peter forgot the last three years of his life, the time that he spent with Jesus. How could he forget that moment when Jesus called him to be a fisher of men and Peter left his boat and everything and just started to follow Jesus. He forgot all of Jesus' teachings, his miracles. He forgot that incredible moment when he stepped out of the boat and actually walked on water. He even forgot what Jesus said just hours ago, that before the rooster crows, he will deny him three times. Peter had forsaken his faith. Talk about failure. In that very moment the rooster crowed, Luke's gospel says in Luke chapter 22 verse 61, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. Wow. Jesus looking right at you at the moment of your greatest failure. Was it a look of disappointment? Agony? Sadness? Whatever it was, when Peter saw the eyes of Jesus, he broke down that very moment and sensed the gravity of his actions. They pierced his soul, and our text says he went outside and wept bitterly. Convicted by his sin, Peter grieved at his own actions, and the tears symbolized the authenticity of his heart. He knew he had made a mess. He blew it. But it was also the beginning of his restoration. It did not happen immediately, but it was the start. The Lord was not going to allow Peter to be defined by his failure. So three days later, when Jesus rose from the dead, the angel tells Mary to go and tell this news to all the disciples and Peter. His name is being singled out here. That is incredible considering what Peter had just done. Peter may have disowned Jesus, but Jesus was not going to disown him. 
then the risen Jesus personally appears to Peter and they have this conversation by the Sea of Galilee. Three times Peter had denied Jesus. Three times Jesus asked him, do you love me? Peter's denial was in public in front of people in the courtyard. So was his restoration in full view of the public in front of all the disciples. And amazingly, nothing had changed in Peter's calling. Peter was not being demoted. He's not being sidelined. He hasn't been benched. He's still entrusted with the same task of feeding the sheep and leading God's church. And what is incredible is the fact that the Bible records the story of failure of its leaders. It does not present them as flawless. You know, if the story had been made up, why would it talk about Peter in such negative light? The leader of the church caving before a servant girl and calling down curses upon himself. Is that a good advertisement for a fledgling group? Why would a made-up story portray its crucial character as blemished? This all the more validates the truth of the Gospels. That the accounts are true and the Gospel writers recorded it as it is. And so we have the leaders with their warts and all. No cover-ups, no fabrication. The story is laid out just as it happened. Do you know what else is incredible? The story of Peter's failure must have come from Peter himself. And that is astounding. Matthew's gospel follows Mark's gospel pretty closely. Mark's gospel was the first gospel to be written, authored by Mark, who was not part of the 12 disciples. Mark, a disciple of Peter, wrote this gospel by relying on Peter's eyewitness. And that is how we get this story of Peter's great failure from the mouth of Peter himself. when you can talk about your failures openly and be willing to have it published, it's a sure sign that it doesn't play you anymore, that you have dealt with it once and for all. Much like King David, who goes on to write a psalm that talks about his mess-ups. Yet sometimes Christians can be guarded, and we don't show our vulnerability. We like to project ourselves as far better than who we really are. And rather than testifying to the beauty of the gospel, we seem to worry about image management. The Christian community needs to be an authentic community if we want people to believe our witness. In his book, Grace, popular Christian author Max Lucado 
talks about his love for beer. The problem is alcoholism runs in his family. He says beer doesn't mix well with my family DNA. So at the age of 21, Lucado says, I swore off it. He clarifies, I differentiate between drinking and drunkenness and decided in my case the former would lead to the latter, so I quit. But a few years back, his cravings were resurrected and it started off with a can of beer every now and then. Once in a while became once a week and once a week became once a day. And Lucado writes, I kept my preference to myself. No beer at home, lest my daughters think less of me. No beer in public, who knows who might see me. None at home, none in public leaves, only one option. Convenience store parking lots. For about a week, I was that guy in the car drinking out of the brown paper bag. He goes on to say, en route to speak at a men's retreat, I stopped for my daily purchase. I walked out of that convenience store, Locato says, with a beer pressed against my side, scurried to my car for fear of being seen, opened the door, climbed in, and opened the can. And he says, then it dawned on me, I had become the very thing I hate, a hypocrite, a pretender, two-faced, acting one way, living another. And I had written sermons about people like me, Christians who care more about appearance than integrity. It wasn't the beer, but the cover-up that nauseated me. Take note of that. This is not about whether drinking beer is right or wrong, but his frantic actions to cover up and protect his self-image, this duplicity and hypocrisy was the concern. Lucado was so convicted that day, he says that he threw the can of beer in the trash. And he prayed at that moment in his car to God and uh, confessed his sins. And then he spoke to the elders of his church and shared with them his struggles. Thank God for elders who are gracious and not legalistic. And one of the church elders put his hand on Lucado's shoulders and he said, what you did was wrong, but what you're doing tonight is right. God's love is great enough to cover your sin. Trust his grace. Isn't that beautiful? When faced with our failures, we do not just see this as something between us and God, but we are actually able to address it before the community of God's people and receive a public restoration. And what I do know is this. Those who have fallen and recover know and understand God's grace like no one else does. Yes, the apostle Peter failed miserably. But that did not define him. 
He stood up, he repented, he got right back on track and serves as a model and an example for all of us. Now in the same section of Matthew, Matthew records a fatal failure where the person never recovered. And that is Judas. One of the most ironical passages in all of Scripture is this. Judas is seized with remorse for all of his actions. He has betrayed the one he has shared life with for over three years for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave in those days. And when Judas finally realized the gravity of his actions, our passage tells us in verses 3 to 5 of Matthew 27, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That is your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. And he went away and hanged himself. Judas witnessed the horror of his actions, the consequences of what had just happened. And he brought the money back. And he says, I don't want it anymore. Take it away from me. This is the height of irony as Judas desperately tries to make up for his past mistakes. And Matthew tells us Judas was seized with remorse. This is not repentance. Matthew's deliberately using a different Greek word. It is remorse. And there's a big difference between remorse and repentance. Repentance brings a change of heart and direction. But remorse is merely being overcome by feelings of regret. A Judas was being torn on the inside by a guilty conscience. He knew what he'd done was wrong. And Judas felt quite sorry for his sins. And that tells me you can feel sorry for your sin and still end up in hell. You can drown in your remorse and regrets and allow it into a, turn into a festering wound, but that is not going to save you. If you need forgiveness, then you need to turn to Jesus in repentance. That is the only way to be forgiven. Amen. Judas did not repent. He did not turn to God. Rather, he went to the religious leaders. And the religious leaders on their part did not show any compassion to a man who was going through hell, tortured by a guilty conscience. They didn't care. They didn't sympathize. They didn't offer pastoral counseling. They instead say, so what? What is that to us? You agreed to the terms. You are responsible. Now get out of here. Judas threw the money away in despair. He wanted none of that anymore. 
Picture this in your mind. 30 pieces of silver just fell on the stone pavement of the temple and you can hear the clinking of the coins. One can only imagine the sense of torture and guilt Judas was facing. And out of sheer desperation, he ends his life. Here's a man who could not live with himself and the memory of what he had done. Judas may have lived with Jesus for three years, but he never understood grace. From his point of view, the way he saw it, it was too late. It was all over. Jesus has been sentenced to be condemned. Now, how could he face Peter and James and John and all the other disciples? What do they have to say to him? The problem with Judas was he believed a lie that he was too far gone, that he had gone off the deep end and all hope was lost. And there are some of you at the sound of my voice who feel the same way. You have bought into this lie that your life cannot be redeemed, that you are hopeless, that you are beyond transformation. And I want you to know today that's what it is. It is a lie. For the beauty of the gospel is it is God's power to salvation to everyone who believes no matter your past. The transformation is not about you. It declares his power to save. And that is why I believe there is not a single person who is too far gone. God is well able to change your life. That is the very reason Jesus came. To redeem fallen, failed people and restore us back in our relationship with God. There's a verse in the New Testament that shows us the difference between Peter and Judas. And it's 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. When you are confronted by your failures, you have two choices. The first choice is to drown in your guilt, shame, and regrets because you cannot forgive yourself for your actions. That is worldly sorrow, and it brings death. It takes the very life out of you. But the second choice is the one God wants us to take. It's to trust in his grace. Genuinely repent of your actions and leave your regrets once and for all at the foot of the cross. That is true repentance. It is a change in thinking that causes you to renounce the sin and totally lean on God's grace. When you do that, that very moment you receive forgiveness. And when you receive that assurance of forgiveness, 
The memory of your failure is not erased, but the sting has been removed. It's not something that is held against you. It no longer haunts you. You're not drowning in your regrets and shame. But all of this becomes a testimony for God's glory of what God can do in and through our brokenness. The words of the church elder to Max Lucado applies to us at that moment when we confess of our failures. What you did was wrong, but what you're doing now is right. God's love is great enough to cover your sin. Trust his grace. I take you back now to what I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, to my personal Peter moment from years ago. I stood there in that room as my knees just buckled. And I participated in the ceremony because I was worried about what my friends would think of me. My courage melted and I just failed to stand up to my convictions. And I denied Jesus, so to speak. And I felt terrible. I came back home that day and I was alone in my room and I had to ask Jesus to forgive me. Lord, I'm sorry. I was a coward, a wimp. I failed to stand up for you. I allowed fear to just take over and didn't have the guts to live up to my true convictions. Would you please forgive me and give me boldness so I can be a passionate witness for Jesus. That was my prayer that day. And I'm thankful today that God did not discard me for my failure for denying Jesus. But this is my testimony. That he heard my cry arising from my failure. And he granted me boldness. And of all people, he called me to be a preacher of his word. And over the years, he has given me numerous opportunities to proclaim his salvation to many in so many different settings. The fact that he would be so patient with me and use me to advance his kingdom is not about how great I am, but how awesome our God is. So let me ask you, where have you failed? Is it a sexual failure? Pride? Self-dependence? Lack of zeal? Addictions? Misuse of money? Is it anger, disobedience, unforgiveness that you're harboring in your heart for a long time? Is it mistreating your spouse, 
slander, gossip. Whatever it is, if you feel convicted today, then don't deny your sin, but be honest before Christ. Confess your sins to Jesus. The Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And don't stop there. Talk to one or two believers whom you trust who are mature in their faith and confess to them because the Bible calls us to confess our sins to one another. That is how we recover from our failures and be restored back in our faith. As we come to an end, I'm going to ask all of us to stand. And this is an opportunity for all of you, for those of you watching us online as well, to examine your heart. Is there a failure that is just staring at your face? And you feel like, I've lived with this for a long time. If you feel convicted, then just let go of it today at the foot of the cross. Confess your sins, for He is faithful to forgive you. Rely and trust in His grace. Whatever it is, don't leave caring the guilt and remorse and regret of your past failures and allow that to ruin your life. So let's maintain a moment of silence and ask the question, what is God saying to me and what am I going to do about it? So I want us to maintain a moment of silence and I want to pray for us and after that I will hand it over to our worship team. Lord, we come before you today with no righteousness of our own. For we are not worthy on our own to come before you. But we thank you for our advocate, the Lord Jesus, our defense, who has finished the work on the cross, paid for all of our sins, Today we can hold on to the promise who the Son sets free is free indeed. So I pray today, Lord, that you will set people free from guilt, from regrets, from shame, things that they have been carrying from the past. That baggage will be taken away from them. The chains will be broken. And the freedom and joy of being forgiven will fill their hearts afresh. We thank you, Lord, that we can rely on your grace and trust in you because you're faithful and true to your promises. 
thank you that you can work through our brokenness, that our failures don't have to define us, but your power is able to bring a deep transformation in us. So would you do that, I pray, that many testimonies will arise from this place of people who have been forgiven, testifying of what Jesus has done for them and living the rest of their lives in total gratitude, advancing your kingdom, engaging in the call that you have for their life, that the enemy will not have his way in pouring feelings of condemnation, but rather, Lord, may we be filled with the assurance that we are sons and daughters of the living God. We pray all this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.